All right, well, good morning, church. Small crowd this morning. Yeah. Yeah. Happy birthday to Eddie, who might be watching online. Eddie, happy birthday. So it's Palm Sunday. We're going to take a couple take a couple weeks break from Genesis as we go Palm Sunday and Easter next week. Palm Sunday, of course, is a, a reference to the practice of the Jewish people who would honor the king by laying down um, palm branches and also their outer garments uh, as a show of love and support and devotion and palm trees, you know, and palm branches and are mentioned in the Bible multiple times um, pertaining to important historical moments. For example... Uh, Israel's judges, Deborah, uh, she conducted court meetings under the shade of palm branches, which you can see in the book of uh, Judges. King Solomon had the, carved the walls of the temple with figures of palm trees, which you can see in 1 Kings. Uh, Jericho is called the city of palm trees in Deuteronomy. As a matter of fact, that's carried over till today. They still refer to Jericho as the city of palm trees. It's supposed to have the best palm trees in all of that area. Um, if you look at uh, when Jehu was anointed king of Israel in 2 Kings, they laid, laid down their garments for him to ride across when they anointed him king. Um, and of course, after Israel got out of Egypt, the Lord commanded that they celebrate a feast in honor of the, their freedom from slavery, which we know as the Feast of Tabernacles, which took place for seven days. And, and the Israelites dwelled in booths at that time of which they used palm branches Right and and the boughs of leafy trees and stuff, as it tells us in Leviticus. So, palm has a lot of historical uh, meaning for Israel and uh, for many historical events. Um, so it's just this fantastic day in history. You know, way more fantastic than all those events uh, attribute. That's just where we can see how long palm branches have been a part of the history of Israel and what they mean to them. Um, But this is a fantastic day in history, a day in which God incarnate, right, Christ himself fulfilled Zechariah 9.9 and partially fulfilled Psalm 118 when he entered Jerusalem and was received as Christ Jesus, Christ being a messianic term, right? So he was received as the Messiah. He was received as the coming king. It tells us in Zechariah 9.9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. It's a day that was witnessed and recorded in all four Gospels. Right, you can find it in uh, in Luke 19, which we'll read today, uh, Matthew 21, John chapter 12, and Mark chapter 11, and it's a day in which it tells us, like for example, in the Gospel of John, that people did just that. They laid down their palm branches. Right, here's my palm branch. This is my personal one. Right, they laid down their palm branches and they laid down their outer garments, as it tells us in the Gospel of John, and they received Jesus as the coming Messiah. I can't hook that back up there. But. Um, and, and Jesus came into Jerusalem from the east. And, and, if, and he's going to come into Jerusalem again from the east too. Um, and if you know anything about Jerusalem, you know that later on in the history, uh, um, the Muslims walled up the eastern gate. It's, and they plant, put a cemetery in front of it. 
because of course that's you know unclean and no one's going to come through one a gate that's all bricked up and you can't get through and two a cemetery <laughs> that's in front of it and they did that because they knew what the what scripture said about the messiah and his coming about coming through the east gate so Jesus came from the east, and he came from on a trail that ran, ran from Bethpage or Bethany uh, near the Mount of Olives. That's on the east side, I think, or the right side of the Mount of Olives. And uh, it was the same path that they brought the Passover lambs in to Jerusalem uh, for the Passover festival, which is when Jesus arrives here, right? And so he possibly rode in on this humble little donkey, um, and when it, when it talks about this little donkey, it, means, it doesn't mean a full-grown donkey, right? It's this humble little tiny, never having been broken in, never been rode donkey, right? And uh, so he rides into Jerusalem, possibly alongside them as they're bringing in Passover lambs down the same trail coming in to the, you know, through the east gate of Jerusalem. Um, they tell us Josephus, who's a Jewish historian, right, he tells us that there was some, during this festival, there was somewhere around 250,000 lambs that were sacrificed during this festival week. And they say the blood that flowed from the temple, the blood that wasn't used in the sacrifices, that wasn't burnt up, the blood that flowed from the temple turned the cr- creek in the Kidron Valley. It flowed down into the Kidron Valley and turned the creek that was down in the Kidron Valley blood red. That's how many lambs they were sacrificing. Because there was more than likely over 2 million people in Jerusalem at this time. Right? We know that you know, they all would come and congregate uh, into Jerusalem during the Passover. Can you imagine having been there at this time? Can you imagine the goosebumps that you might have felt when all of a sudden people started shouting that the Messiah was coming? that the Messiah was coming, right? And they started praising the coming king. Because how fast did the word spread through Jerusalem? It tells us in Matthew 21, it tells us that the whole city was moved. Okay? And when you look at that Hebrew word for moved, um, uh, it's a word that means shaken or quake. Right? So the, the whole city shook because of Jesus entering the city that day, because of the excitement when they heard that the Messiah was coming, right? So the whole city shook. And if you want to know what that's like, just remember like, you know, the beast quake, right? You know, back when the Seahawks, when we actually had a good football team, right? Remember when Marshawn Lynch ran that 67 yards and broke nine tackles for a touchdown against the Saints during that wildcard game in 2010, right? The the immediate celebration by the 60,000 plus Seahawks fans and that day registered as a small tremor, right, on the seismograph of the Pacific Northwest Seismic Center Station. And so that's the idea when it said that the whole city shook, right? They, if they had seismographs back then, they would have registered, right, cities away that the whole city of Jerusalem just went, whoa, right? The Messiah is coming. So that just gives you an idea of how Jerusalem was moved when Jesus entered Jerusalem on this day. A day prophesied, you know, about in Daniel chapter 9, Daniel 9, 25, as it says. Um, it says, now therefore, know therefore and understand that the go- from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks, the street shall be built again, 
and the wall, even in troublesome times. So God's time clock to send the Messiah would start the day that the commandment went forth to restore and build Jerusalem, which you can find in Nehemiah. And from that day, it would be uh, 69 seven-year cycles until the Messiah would appear. Right? So uh, the Babylonian calendar was based on a uh, 300, roughly, I'm not going to go into all the details, roughly a 360-day uh, year, because so, it varies. Um, so that would mean that roughly 173,880 days after the commandment to rebuild Jerusalem, which we know exactly when that command was given, right? when you go into Nehemiah and look at the date, the Messiah should come. So what that commandment, like I said, it's in the book of Nehemiah, went forth uh, from the Persian king Artaxerxes to Nehemiah. It was the month of Nisan, or it was known as March 14th, if we were to look at it on the calendar, 445 BC, right, to restore the walls of Jerusalem. So if you use that date as the starting point and you count forth 173,880 days, right, it brings us to this date here, which Jesus entered Jerusalem, this exact day in which Jesus uh, entered Jerusalem, right? Which, you know, is no coincidence, right? God had it all planned out. It's the day Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, right? God's incarnation had a purpose, his advent has a purpose, and his triumphal entry isn't any less significant. So let's read it. We're going to read from uh, Luke 19, one of the most common ones to read from. And we're going to read verses 28 through 44. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And when he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, so the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. That's all he had to say. So those who were sent went away and found it, just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he, Jesus, drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you um, for the, the, the truth about understanding God's word and what it tells us about Jesus, about who Jesus is, about Jesus' first coming, about Jesus' second coming. And what comes with that when he, like he, what he tells the Pharisees is like, uh, 
you know, I'm not going to shut up my people from praising me. They're declaring the Messiah is coming in. And if only Jerusalem had known when I was arriving. They should have known. They had the word in front of them. It told them exactly when he was coming. It's just, Lord, we need to stay focused on your word so we know the signs of the times in which we live. And we thank you, Lord, for the truth of the fact that the Messiah has come. There are still people who are waiting for him to come when he's already come. He's coming again, and they need to be ready for it. So we thank you for the truth of your word. We pray it just speak it to us this morning, speak it to our hearts, and speak it to all those who aren't here, Lord. We pray you just bless them. In Jesus' name, amen. When I was thinking about Palm Sunday this week, I thought about VE Day. Right? I wasn't obviously around on VE Day. But most of us know what VE Day is, right? The day of victory in Europe, the day we celebrate the victory in Europe, May 8th, 1945. This is a picture from the celebration of VE Day. Then that was a day that, you know, for all those who celebrated it, for all those who were here, then that's a day that remains in the memory of all those who witnessed it, right? It was an end to nearly six years roughly, of a war that had cost millions of lives and had destroyed homes and families and cities and had brought huge suffering to the population of entire countries, and we know how the war went. And and so on this day, on VE Day, (coughs) millions of people in in the UK and in the United States, and, you know, they they rejoiced. They rejoiced. They, They, you know, they shouted out praises. They celebrated in the streets, right? because Germany had surrendered, right? And towns and cities across the world, millions of people, you know, celebrated the victory with street parties, dancing and singing, right? It, it wasn't the end of the war yet, right? The war wouldn't end until September 2nd, technically, right? And, and the impact that the war had on the people, the repercussions of World War II, they were felt long after Germany and Japan, right, had surrendered. So why do... You know, why do I mention all that? Because palm leaves are a sign of victory, right? For Jerusalem and for the Israelites specifically, but not just them, uh, palm leaves were a sign of victory, right? Because they laid these down on the road when the king returned victorious, right, to the city. They, they were a symbol of Jewish nationalism, Right, much in the way that the American flag is uh, for us, for example. Right, so all those who celebrated and worshipped Jesus as he entered Jerusalem on a donkey uh, thought victory had come. Right, and it had. <laughs> that's the that's the the true thing of the fact that it had come. Victory had come. Jesus was there. The Messiah had come. It just wasn't exactly how they were expecting it. Right. See, because Rome had put a bitter pill down the throat of the Jewish nation and of Israel. Israel, you know, they wanted a new king, right? The, the times they lived in under Rome were tough and cruel, to put it mildly, for them. They wanted to be delivered. They, they wanted to be rescued, right, from Rome. And now they thought, the day is at hand. Here's the coming Messiah. He's going he's to rescue us, right, from Rome. Rome was going to get vanquished. The nation's going to be restored. This is a day of victory. And so they celebrated, right? They rejoiced. They laid down palm branches. They laid down outer garments, right? They honored Jesus with their garments, which is a, a lot. 
You don't understand what that means, really, because we have, you know, dressers and closets full of clothes. At this time, most people had one set, and they wore it, <laughs> right? So, so for them to lay down their outer garments for them to be trampled over by a donkey, in this case, but, you know, when a king came, it was a much longer line right, of people and horses and everything that would trample over it. So for them to lay aside part of their wardrobe to let a man ride over them was really laying something down for them, right? And then they sang Hosanna, as it tells us in Matthew 21, right? And the crowds that went before him and followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna means save now. That's what Hosanna means. That's part of the, that's part of the Psalm 118 part, right? Uh, you can see that, verses 25 and 26. Save us, we pray, O Lord. Hosanna, right? O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. They're, they're singing out Psalm 118, right? And they're opening de- openly declaring Jesus to be the Messiah, but not their spiritual Messiah, Right? They were openly declaring him to be their political or their national Messiah. Right? Save us from Caesar. Sound familiar? Right? I mean, it's what people are looking for today. Right? And it's not just here in the United States, uh, but globally. People are looking for a Messiah. They may not call it the Messiah. They're looking for someone to come in and clean up the mess. They're looking for someone to unite the world globally, someone to be able to take control of everything that's going on and bring some calm and peace and sense right, to everything and just sort of restore things to, you know, back to how it was. You know? I, I, what was that shirt we saw to this week that said, uh, normal isn't returning? Jesus is, right? But normal isn't returning. So that's what people are saving today. They might, like I said, they're not saying, save us from Caesar, though they might be, I don't know, right? But they're saying, save us from this political craziness, right? Save us, you know, from these incompetent tyrants, right? Save us from these destructive tendencies, right? Save us from these ridiculous gas prices. Save us from these unnecessary, the unnecessary inflation, right? Save us from the supply chain shortages and the energy supply issues, right? You know, save us from the crumbling economy. Save us from war. Save us. That's what people are saying right now. Save us. Right? The world's looking for a Messiah today. The Bible tells us that there will be one who rises up from the sea, a false one, an antichrist, And the government that he sets up, the economy he sets up, the religion he sets up is not anything that you want to be a part of. But the world will accept him for a time. So the idea of a victorious, conquering king entering a city was well known. And the victorious king came in escorted by the citizens of his kingdom and his army. Jesus came in on a donkey with his disciples. It was a little bit of a different picture than what they're used to, but still, they were, you know, the idea was well known. And as he entered, they sung praises and they came in with symbols of his victory and authority, which are the palm leaves that they laid down before him. And they adored Jesus because they believed that the raising of Lazarus from the dead established his credentials as a conquering Messiah. That is what preceded this. Right? When you go into the Gospels and you, and you look at the story, what preceded this event was Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. And so 
that, that had, news had spread before him, right? That, you know, in time of we live in today, stuff like that is instantly online. <laughs> it's on Facebook and it's on Twitter and everybody's watching on the news instantaneously after it happened. But still, it spread really fast, right? If you can raise someone from the dead, then you can probably deliver the people from Caesar. Right? That's what they were thinking. But it, again, he was still a political messiah. He was not a spiritual messiah. They weren't thinking spiritually at all. Right? He was, but Jesus was incredibly popular. Like I said, if social media had existed back then, he would have a huge following. Right? So his entry into Jerusalem at this time uh, was somewhat of a patriotic parade. Right? His reputation had gone ahead of him. The confetti was flowing from the buildings. You know, you, you see the pictures of the parades after like the wars and stuff. Right? However, they were confused as to who Jesus really was. It tells us in Matthew 21 that the city, it says that, this, that the city asked, who is this? I mean, they had heard the commotion. The whole city was stirred and shaken and quaking from the news. But, the, but they still want to know, well, who is this? Some people were, you know, who is this? Right? And the crowd said, this is the prophet, prophet Jesus right? from Nazareth of Galilee. You can hear the response. What good? What good does anything come from Nazareth? Right, right. They had they had an idea of who they wanted him to be. They called him king, and truthfully, right, he is king. Even Pilate said to him, "So you are a king?" And he answered, "You say correctly that I am a king. Right, I am a king. I have been born for this, and I have come into the world so testify and to testify to the truth. Everyone who hears the tr- of who is of the truth hears my voice. Right. So, so Pilate's like you." They say you're a king. He goes, I am a king. It's true. I'm a king. But who Jesus really was went beyond the popular understanding of who they thought he was. And that's the same today. Who Jesus is goes beyond the popular understanding of Jesus today as well. They say that, you know, I looked on Google and it says that that more people want to know about Jesus than any person alive or dead. That's one of, it is the highest searched up person statistically you know, on Google as far as searching is concerned. Uh, But when you ask people who Jesus is, right, you get a wide and crazy range of answers, right? Jesus, you hear this like some of the standard things like uh, Jesus is a prophet, right? Uh, Jesus is a morally upstanding citizen, right? You know, I've heard Jesus is Santa Claus, right? Jesus is a peace-loving socialist hippie, right? Jesus is a storybook character. Jesus is a joke. Jesus is my imaginary friend. Jesus is irrelevant. Jesus is a myth. I've heard Jesus is unscientific. Jesus is dead. Well, you're going to be surprised, They say 52% of Americans say Jesus isn't God, but he's a great teacher. But the word of God is quite clear on this. Matter of fact, Jesus was quite clear on this, especially if you read through the Gospel of John. It's a great one to read if you want to understand Jesus being clear on who he was. But the Word of God is really clear on this. Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the bread of life. He is the great shepherd. He is Emmanuel. He is the light of the world. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is the faithful and true witness. He is the horn of salvation. He is the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sins of the world. Right? Jesus said of himself before Abraham was, I am, right? Jesus is God. Something to remember, though, Jesus is not phased by our lack of understanding of who he is. 
isn't phased by our lack of knowledge concerning his purpose or his will in our lives. Right? He continues to work that out in us. He continues to work that out and continues to reveal himself to us just as he continues to do that with those who are following him here. Right? The, the, his disciples didn't have a full knowledge of who he was. The crowds obviously didn't. Right? The, the high priest heard the crowds chanting, blessed is he who comes. And the, the, the high priest knew that they were claiming that Jesus was the Messiah. They understood clearly what the crowds were saying. What was the high priest's response? Tell the crowds to shut up. You guys, it's past uh, the noise curfew, right? You're too loud. Shut up. And Jesus said, if I tell them to shut up, the rocks are going to sing out. The stones in the city are going to cry out. Right? When the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Prince of Peace, right, riding into the city of peace, on that day, that day in which Jesus publicly and openly declared he was the Messiah. For, for, for a lot of Jesus' ministry, he didn't want people to shout that out necessarily. Right? He even stopped his mom from doing it. It's not my time yet. Right? But here's the one day that he publicly and openly declares he's the Messiah, the one true king. He allows people to declare him as the Messiah as he rides into Jerusalem, right? This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Psalm 118 again. As he rides in to Jerusalem. But as we can see from as we read through Luke here, not just with the high priest, but also as we'll see with the crowds, is that not everyone accepted him. Right? Not everyone accepted him or not everyone received him. The city of peace should have known where true peace could be found, but instead they rejected Jesus. Matter of fact, he says that right here at the end. He says, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that made for peace. Right? He's telling the city of Jerusalem, he's like, you guys should have known I was coming this day. The high priest, without a doubt, the religious leaders should have known. They had the word of God. It specifically states exactly on what day. He was going to come into Jerusalem. And on that day, Jesus rides in and is declared publicly Messiah. And the high priests are like, shut people up. Right? And he's like, oh, right? It says he wept over that. He wept over that. Right? See, when Jesus didn't do what they expected Jesus to do, because they might have for a while really thought he was going to do exactly that. Because one, one of the first things he does after he gets into Jerusalem, after he rides in on the donkey, he goes in and he cleans out the temple courts, right? I mean, he, 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 he sits there and he winds up that lash or whatever, just watching all these people selling, you know, all these birds and all these different things they sell for sacrifices and everything, which was just profaning the house of God. And he sat, and then he just cleaned, you know, he just started flipping tables and driving everyone out. So probably a lot of Jews are like, ooh, right? It's going to happen. Look at him. He's already gone into the temple and he's driving people out. Well, you know, he's, okay, something's happening. But still, it didn't unfold exactly like they wanted. So when Jesus didn't throw off the yoke of Rome, right? When the nation was full of fear again. They, ha they, they thought that things were going to happen a certain way, and when they didn't happen that way, they immediately started 
being fearful, and by the end of the week, right, they shouted, crucify him. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 23, he says, O Jerusalem, O Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus knew that Israel's desire for a political Messiah would bring total destruction in less than a generation. Right? He says, he tells them as he in the temple, he tells his disciples, not one stone is going to be left unturned. Right? That was a hard thing for them to imagine because the temple was huge and glorious. See, humanity is looking for a Messiah to deliver them how they want to be delivered, not how they need to be delivered. Right? And the thing is, Jesus came to save us from sin. Right? He came to seek and save the lost, to save us from the penalty of death. He didn't come to save us from politics. He didn't come to save us from government. He didn't come to save us from inflation. He didn't come to save us from taxes. He didn't come to save us from the, you know, this purposeful destruction of our economy that's happening. He, you know, not that God won't address all of that. He will. But first and foremost, he came to save us spiritually. Right? I mean, yes, our nation needs rescuing. Right? right? Our government needs an enema. It needs a good cleansing, right? But, but spiritually, without Jesus, we're dead men walking, right? And if Jesus came and he did exactly what they were expecting, right? If Jesus came and drove out Rome and restored the nation Israel and sat down as king, right? If he set right all the wrongs of humanity that were happening at the time, and he had never addressed the corrosive and power, right, and, and fatal power of sin in their lives, then he would have done nothing. Right? Nothing. All his work would have been in vain. Right? Because the root of all these issues is sin. Right? The heart of man is evil continually. And judgment's coming. And this time the Lord's bringing fire, not flood. Right? But judgment is coming. But God wishes that none should perish, right? So that path that Jesus took that day when he rode in on that donkey, as he rode into Jerusalem, was careful and deliberate. It was willful and obedient, and it pointed directly towards the cross on which he would triumph over death, right? And that was a triumphal entry, right, indeed. Because he was announced as king, he was worshipped at Lord, and yet he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross, as it tells us in Philippians. Right? It says, for this hour, Jesus had come. This is why he came. All the other expectations and everything, all the other things that the people were hoping would happen, turned out to be really disappointing to them. Because they were looking for a worldly Messiah. They were looking for a political Messiah. They were looking for a, this nationalistic Messiah that's going to save them from politics and government and taxes and Rome. Right? Jesus said, no, I came to save you from your sin. It's far more worse than anything else that's happening to you right now. Right? 
And in John 12, 27, Jesus said, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come. Right? Luke 22, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. It tells us that love is patient, that love is kind, it does not envy. It does not boast, it is not proud, it is not rude, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no account of wrongs. Love takes no pleasure in evil, but it rejoices in truth. It bears all things, it believes all things, it hopes all things, it endures all things. And it was this love, right? Because that's a description of God's love towards us and how our love should be towards others. We, we tend to forget some of those things when we're loving others, like the hold no you know, account, you know, keep no account of wrongs. We, we're really good at making you know, the, the list. Oh, I, oh, yeah, I love you, but remember back on this day, right? But, but, but that's a picture of God's love towards us. And it was that love that led Jesus to the cross. He went into Jerusalem knowing where he was headed and knowing what he needed to do. And knowing what, right, exactly where he was going to go. Because there's only one way, only one way to be saved, only one way to truly celebrate victory. Right? Not a temporary victory, because this really was just a temporary victory. But an eternal victory. Right? And that way is Jesus. And for us in Jesus, because of that, now we're looking to a coming victory. Right? Jesus is coming, excuse me, he's coming again. Not on a donkey this time, right? But he's coming on his war horse. It tells us in Revelation 19, Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and make war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe, and he has on his thigh, a name written, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. That's how Jesus is coming again. Right? See, the world is looking for a Messiah. They're going to accept a false Messiah. The real Messiah is going to come. And when he comes, he's going to look like this. They had their chance. They, ha- Jesus, they still have their chance today. They will have their chance to accept Jesus all the way through the tribulation. Right? When the angels you know, go around the globe declaring the everlasting gospel. They're looking for something that's already who's already been here, they're looking for Jesus. The answer and the hope for their salvation is in Jesus. It says Jesus will be lifted up. And that verb used for lifted up in the Greek, right? that word is hyposothenia, and it has a deliberate double meaning. It means both a literal elevation as being raised up on a cross, and also has um, also means an exaltation as being raised in rank or honor. So Jesus will be lifted up, both literally on a cross, as we know of. Uh, But he's also going to be lifted up and exalted in rank and honor because he is what? He is the King of kings and he is the Lord of lords. He will be lifted up. It says in Philippians 2, uh, verses 9 through 11, it says, therefore God has highly exalted him, right? Which means lifted him up. And bestowed on him the name that is above every name. 
Right? So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Listen, at that time, we're not going to have any false illusions of who Jesus is. Right? The world won't have any false illusions of who Jesus is. The world needs to know, though, now who Jesus is. Because you don't want to get to a point where it's too late. Right? You don't want to get to a point where you've accepted the false Messiah. You want to accept the real Messiah. You want to understand that he already came. Right? That he already went to the cross because of his great love for you. He already conquered death, as we'll talk about next week on Easter. Right? Oh, death, where is thy sting? Right? There is hope, and that hope is Jesus. And we got to help people understand and get past these false expectations and these false illusions of who Jesus is, because even Christians have false expectations of who Jesus is. Right? We have this idea that he's going to take away all our problems here on the earth. He's going to pay all our bills, Right? If we just continue, you know, I mean, the prosperity gospel, we, some, you know, a lot of us understand the, you know, how false that is, but there's a lot of people who believe it, right? And they really think that, if, you know, that the Lord's going to give them the, their riches, right? And my life will, my bills will be paid, my, you know, I'll get the cars, I'll get the house, I'll get all this as long as I do this, as long as I do this. As and if this doesn't happen, then it's a problem with their faith. It's that, you know, whatever they're being told. Everyone, everyone has these, in a certain way, I say a lot of us, or if not most of us, have false expectations of Jesus. And like I said, it's not a bad thing necessarily because Jesus isn't scared by that. He continues to work that out in your life. He continues to reveal himself to you. And sometimes you'll be like, I always thought Jesus was like this. And now I realize he's not exactly, right? He's like this, right? He's not just my best buddy. He's actually king. That's a difference, right? But we tend to approach him differently depending on our expectations of him. We don't want to be caught like a lot of Jerusalem was, disappointed because when Jesus came in, he went to the cross instead of driving out Rome. Right? Everything that we're going through today, all the political issues, all the global craziness, everything, it will be dealt with. But Jesus has come to deal with you personally on a one-on-one -on -one level, right? To deal with you about sin and to draw you closer to God. Right? He, he, he's sanctifying you. He's making you holy. That's what he wants to work with. That's what he wants to do. All these other things, yes. Don't worry. But don't let that get in the way. Don't be disappointed because he didn't drive down inflation. Right? Gas is $5 a gallon. Okay, it's lower than that right now. But you know, Don't be disappointed if gas goes up higher. God, you failed me. You didn't do what I wanted. Right? It's not that at all. He's dealing with you on a personal level, right? When Jesus, when we're with Jesus, when, so it tells us in Revelation chapter 7, right, the worship will be real. Because we won't have, like I said, have any false illusions at that point of who Jesus is. 
right? In Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, it says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with what? With palm branches, right? In their hands. Palm branches. A sign of victory. In this case, true victory. Right? And these palm branch bearing saints are going to sing, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Right? Our salvation belongs to Jesus. That's what was prophesied way back in Zechariah. Right? That they should have known, the scripture they should have known that said, right, righteous and having salvation is he humble and mounted on a donkey. Our salvation is in Jesus. It belongs to Jesus. And it tells us in 1 John chapter 5, verses 4 and 5, it says, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. So put your faith in Jesus and point people to Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for Palm Sunday. I thank you for that fact, Lord, that on that day you rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, accepted the praise and the shouts of the pity people, declaring you to be king. And then you showed them the type of king you were. And you went straight to the cross. You humbled yourself obediently to the point of death because of your great love for us. So that we could all accept that gift of grace that comes from that. So we thank you, Lord, for your great love. We thank you, Lord, that you just continue to show us who you truly are. Cutting through who the, the false expectations that we have of what, who we think you are sometimes. And you just get right to the point. Lord, we, we want to truly worship you as you, you truly are. So I pray, Lord, you just continue to work that out in us. Continue to draw us closer to you and help us, Lord, just continue to love one another as you love us so that we can point people to the hope that's found, for the salvation that's found in you, Lord. People are looking for a Messiah, and you're here, you've already came, and you're coming again, so let's just point people, Lord, to Jesus, we thank you, in Jesus' name, amen.